Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments Podcast, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Matthew 28, Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection, and we are joined today by Dr. Terry Donaldson. Uh, Terry Donaldson is Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Wycliffe College, uh, which is at the University of Toronto, and he is one of our... um, Many Canadians Many on the Canadians podcast. Many Canadians on the podcast. You know, the greatest uh, interviewees are always the Canadians, right? Uh, and the greatest co-host is always the Canadian one. Um, Terry is uh, an accomplished scholar of the New Testament and has written uh, many important works on Paul and on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, his uh, Terry, I believe it's your first book, uh, was titled Jesus on the Mountain, a study in Matthean theology, which was published by T.N.T. Clark, and that's especially relevant since in Matthew 28, of course, we find Jesus and the disciples on a mountain. Uh, And Terry's also written important works on the identity of Gentiles in ancient Judaism and Christianity, including uh, the book Judaism and the Gentiles with Baylor Press, and most recently, Gentile Christian Identity from Cornelius to Constantine, The Nations, the Parting of the Ways, and Roman Imperial Ideology, which came out with Erdmans. Um, Now, this question of the identity of the Gentiles is also very important for our discussion today uh, of Matthew 28. Um, Now, I have to say, I know Terry from my time doing my doctoral work at the University of Toronto, and uh, Terry was just really generous with his time uh, with me. Um, he, uh, I wanted to do a reading course on major interpreters of Paul, and so I approached Terry, I sent him an email saying, hey, would, would you be willing to supervise a directed reading course on, on that? And now, Terry, I don't know what the uh, compensation structure <laughs> is like for directed reading courses, but I'm just going to assume that you, know, you, you did it out of the generosity of your heart. And so he would sit down with me uh, over the course of a semester, you know, we'd read these major interpreters on Paul, and then I'd get to like talk to this accomplished, you know, New Testament scholar, uh, and it was just wonderful to sit in his office and to hear him kind of yeah. talk through these major interpreters of Paul. And then he was also on my dissertation committee, and even after he retired, he still continued to read through my chapters and to give feedback. And so, and he continues his generosity with his time with yeah. us on the podcast today. So thanks for joining us, Terry. Well, thanks for the welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I look forward to getting a taste of what those meetings were like uh, back there in Canada. Maybe there'll be less A's and boots and things like that uh, in our conversation today. Uh, but I want to start with a question for you, Terry. More general, what first drew you to... New Testament studies and to the Gospel of Matthew in particular? I suppose I could say that my first degree was in physics and math, though I don't imagine that helps uh, with the question. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in a conservative Protestant environment, one that was uh, Bible intensive, 
which meant that uh, as I was coming of age, I had both an interest in the Bible and uh, uh, a lot of questions and issues that I needed to to, to work through. Um, I I did well in school and, and think I was uh, from an early age drawn to to study and and uh, scholarship, but it took me a while to figure out that I could pursue that uh, and and wrestle with uh, issues uh, concerning the Bible, the early Christian movement, and so on. Uh, as as a scholar, I did well in physics and math, and so I ended up doing a four year degree, pretty intensive degree in physics and math, but eventually. Uh, uh, realized that my questions lay elsewhere and, and began to pursue um, a scholarly uh, career. Matthew was important in that. Though as far as as far as method of, of thinking critically, you know, there's a lot of there's a, a, a lot of transference from a, a science degree um, to the the sort of work we do. A lot of backing and filling that needed to be to, to be carried out uh, with respect to things that I missed by not doing a humanities degree, but uh, I don't regret. Um, well, you don't get to choose where you start, really, and I, I don't regret that part of it at all. And so what about Matthew? Because, you know, even if you decide I want to study the Bible, you've got 66 books in the Protestant canon to choose from. Why would you hone in on this one? Yeah. Maybe it's because I, I had a... Uh, an overdose of Paul and the book of Revelation growing up. I was always attracted more to the synoptics and the Jesus uh, that, that we see in the synoptics. With Matthew, it was uh, his use of the Old Testament or, or what I'd prefer to call the scriptures of Israel uh, now. Um, of course, beginning to look at that, there was a lot of puzzling things. You know, the, the quotation about he, he will be called a Nazarene, which... Uh, it's pretty hard to track down. <laughs> the one in chapter 21 in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where Matthew seems to depict Jesus as riding on two donkeys at once, which is pretty tricky. But Matthew became more interesting for me when I noticed something about the, uh, uh, the, the quotation, out of Egypt have I called my son, or called my son out of Egypt. Um, at first, I wondered whether it was just a, you know, another curious feature of, of Matthew. But when I looked at Hosea 11 and 1 and saw that the son was Israel, that seemed to suggest a number of connections in the first few chapters of Matthew. Actually, Wayne Baxter was speaking uh, along these lines in a podcast that I saw recently. In, <laughs> in serious, a little plug for him. Um, so, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, of course, um, time in the Jordan River. Uh, but then noticing that all of the quotations that Jesus um, uses in this dialogue with the tempter uh, aren't just randomly selected. They come from a, from a, you know, a, a short section in Deuteronomy where Moses is, is instructing the Israelites of the lessons that God was wanting them to learn during their sojourn in the wilderness. And he even says, as a father disciplines his son, so have I been disciplining you. So that, that tweaked me to the fact that there was more going on here. Um, that part of the identity of Jesus as son had to do with 
with an Israel kind of identity. Um, then in the first, my first year of theological study in a, uh, a fairly standard course on church history, I remember being struck by the fact that all of the people we were talking about in you know the second and third century, Justin and Irenaeus and Tertullian, Origen, were Gentiles. And it struck me, how did that come about that a, that a movement that began totally within Judaism with a, a, the a presentation of a Jewish Messiah so quickly became dominated by, by non-Jews? Um, in the course of writing a uh, paper for that, for that uh, or term paper for that course, I read Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, Epistle of Barnabas, and then stumbled across James Park's uh, book, The Conflict of the Church and the Synagogue, and then uh, Jules Isaac's Jesus in Israel, and uh, encountered for the first time the, the Adversus Eudaios um, argument in the early church, the argument against the Jews, especially, well, especially in both the books by Parks and Isaac, uh, they were dealing not only with history, but with, with the a long legacy of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Um, um, and um, the, the effects of a supersessionist kind of reading of Israel scripture uh, today. Um, so that's put a, a different slant on my interest in Matthew, but it certainly highlighted things in Matthew that were pertinent. Matthew's interest in the Gentiles with the Great Commission, the harsh polemic that we find against the Jewish leaders in Matthew, the cry of his blood be upon us uh, and on our children, the cry of all the people. So all of a sudden I had quite a an additional pile of issues and questions to wrestle with. Right, now how do you see Matthew 28 uh, fitting into the book as a whole? Well, that's a great question, and I appreciate the fact that you've asked me to uh, deal with chapter 28 rather than some other chapters that, that uh, uh, lie in between. Uh, uh, two things by way of response, one brief and one perhaps a little longer. Um, first, uh, as far as Matthew's themes are concerned, a lot of scholars have noted um, long before I came along that the concluding verses, the Great Commission scene, contains um, almost all of the things that are touched on are issues that are significant for Matthew. You know, you you touch any any item in that list, whether it's mountains or the disciples worship of Jesus or their doubt or Jesus authority or the abiding presence of Jesus um, uh, lights begin to go go on all the way through the gospel um, it's, it's kind of a grand finale where a lot of Matthean themes get restated again in in a climax a second uh, observation I make uh, would have to do with the narrative shape of the gospel um, and chapter 28 is the the uh, the climax and conclusion of the story that readers have been working their way through and and and, and the story that's been set in motion right at the beginning my uh, 
scholarly training was in redaction criticism. So it was reading Matthew uh, from the perspective of identifying his sources and looking at the way in which he arranged and edited them. But in my early years of, of teaching, which also coincided, coincided with, the, uh, with a new interest in narrative uh, criticism and, and, and narrative readings, um, I began to, to, to find that that approach was both uh, very interesting to me and also it was more useful in a uh, classroom setting. So the, the, the old idea that goes back to Aristotle of stories having a beginning, a middle and an ending um, and, that, and that the narrative effects a completed process of change uh, from the beginning to the end uh, struck me as, as, a, as both an in interesting and very useful way of, of looking at the, uh, at the gospel. So, Terry, you've been talking about narrative criticism and about reading kind of the gospel of Matthew as a narrative. So could you talk a little bit about how you see particular features, let's say, at the end of the narrative, at the climax of the narrative, how they dovetail with your kind of narratival reading of the gospel? Yeah, th thanks for that. Um, if, if I can begin a little bit in the beginning of narratives, generally begin with with some sort of a problem or a, an issue or a, or a desideratum, something that's uh, out of whack, we can describe it in non-literary terms. And it, it introduces a main character. And the main character, of course, is, is Jesus. The issue that, that uh, is important for the story to follow is... Um, well, it comes to expression in two places. One, uh, he will he will save his people from their sins, and then a little later, uh, he he's the one. Jesus is the one who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, at at the beginning of the uh, of the gospel, one has this sense that Jesus is going to address a problem with respect to uh, to Israel. Um, and, and their situation with respect to sin and lack of a shepherd. And he's going to do that. Uh, Jesus is identified in a number of ways at the beginning of the gospel, but particularly, I, th I think his identification as son is, is uh, perhaps the broadest term that's, that's um, introduced. Um, stories have complications, and one doesn't have to go far before we get into complications. One of them is uh, the, the identity of Jesus' people. When you jump to the end of the gospel, Jesus' people seem to be a, a, a new community of disciples drawn from all the ethne. And there's a challenge of interpretation there, but, but either way, it, it's a people that now includes non-Jews or Gentiles. And so one of the questions that that uh, is is there for readers as they begin to work the way through is um, how what is the real nature of Jesus' people? How do Gentiles come to fit into it? The other, and this is the other thing I'll, I'll say briefly, and we might want to get into it, is um, and it rises out of the temptation narrative, particularly uh, where you get the 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 idea that there are two definitions of sonship going on for Matthew. One is, 
is the royal uh, kingly messianic son. Uh, you were my son to this day I have begotten you uh, kind of thing. And in the temptation narrative, Satan seems to be pressing Jesus to the logical conclusion to that, that identity. If you were the son, then there are certain regal, royal uh, things that that are yours to command uh, the the uh, the idea of power and divine protection. Jesus answers those um, uh, from the perspective of the humble, obedient son that Israel was called to be. So one of the tensions that works its way through the narrative is is the interplay between those two. Satan's role comes up again uh, in Peter's after Peter's confession, and then the mockers at the cross, if you are the son of God, then you've got the power to come down. So one of the, one of the issues for readers is, if Jesus is going to be faithful to the, the humble, obedient sonship, how is he going to be able uh, of any saving use to his people? So as, as the story begins, you, you have um, the, the, the basic uh, problem that Jesus is to address but almost immediately there are these complications and it's how those complications uh, play out in the story and how they are brought to some sort of a satisfying conclusion in the, in the final chapter that that is the experience of reading Matthew. And hopefully we'll see some of that as we move through the, the chapter now. But before we get into uh, moving through the chapter verse by verse, as it were, I'd be interested to hear from you as someone who's thought a lot about this chapter. Is there something that you find very difficult to understand, and how do you understand that difficulty? Well, the, the, the real, uh, the major difficulty is how to translate ethne in, in chapter 28. Um, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciplize all the ethne. Um, in, in Jewish usage, uh, ethne commonly is used to refer to the non-Jewish nations. And even by Jesus' day, non-Jewish individuals, um, as I point out in another context, when, when Paul in Galatians uh, says that uh, when, when before James, the, the, the uh, James group came, Peter was quite happy to eat with the with the ethne. Uh, Paul's not talking there about ethnic groups, nations. He's talking about individuals. Um, so uh, a, a common use of ethne in Jewish context is non-Jews, Gentiles, which gives us the reading, go and make disciples of all the Gentiles, which for many has led to a, an anti-Jewish um, an anti-Jewish culmination to the story that, you know, God has sent the Messiah to Israel. Israel has rejected the Messiah. All the people say, uh, claim responsibility for his death. Um, and so in the end, uh, God abandons Israel and and turns to, the, to a new people among the Gentiles. So Matthew read that way could, could feed very easily into the kind of uh, supersessionistic um, story against the Jews. 
the the broader use of the term is nations uh, in in general. And um, so, at least for a long time, I've been uh, more partial to the view that what we have going on in Chapter 28 is a an expansion. Uh, uh, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the earlier part of the gospel. Now go to all the nations, Israel included. Um, so it's an expansion of of the mission Israel is is included, but sort of with a reduced status, one nation among among others. So that that that, that to me is the the toughest. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, why don't we try? Why don't we try to resolve it? Chapter twenty eight. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't why don't we try to resolve it when we get when we get through to that part of the chapter? I think that'll be uh, interesting for us to yes to deal with it then. So keep listening. Yes, we will get there. Uh, <laughs> the resurrection account in Mark sixteen is much more abbreviated compared to Matthew's account. Mark ends with the angel telling the women to go tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised and that they will see him in Galilee, and then the Gospel of Mark ends like this. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And just a note here, some people will have more at the end of the Gospel of oh, Mark, Mark, but sure. there will be a yeah. note that says the most reliable manuscripts don't include. Sure, yes, yeah. yeah. I think most, most scholars regard the shorter ending to be the kind of uh, yes. original. Um, now, although Jesus' resurrection is asserted by the angel, right? The angel says that Jesus is resurrected, right, to, to them, and he's going to meet them in Galilee. There is no actual <laughs> resurrection appearance of Jesus in Mark. Now, do you have some thoughts, Terry, why, or suggestions, why you think Mark's account ends the way it does and why Matthew's account is extended beyond Mark's in the way that it is? And maybe this gets to some of the kind of redactional criticism issue that you were that you were interested in right if Mar if matthew has mark as a source why does he do what he does with the resurrection appearance why not just leave it in the way mark has it I, i'm quite partial to to mark's ending or at least i find it very effective i don't know if it was uh, the intention of the evangelist but but to to end the gospel as abruptly as it starts is interesting because, uh, as you've already su suggested, Mark has provided readers with the information they need to fill in the ending. Um, Jesus, on three occasions, has, has uh, foretold his resurrection. Um, the, the angel has said, you will see them. Jesus, in chapter 14, uh, says, after I am raised, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. So there's all this... Uh, expectation that's been raised as to what's going to happen uh, after, after the uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, as, as a reader, you're, you could imagine a uh, um, an, an ideal or intended reader getting to the end and saying, huh, what? Oh, yeah, uh, I, I'm reading this. So I, I guess the women got over their silence and, and told people about it. Um, and and um, the gospel has been proclaimed, and here's the gospel written. Right. Whether that's Mark's intention or not, who sure. can say? But but as far as the the experience of reading, it, it can be a very effective um, 
way of, of ending the story. Matthew evidently thought there was more to say. He certainly wants to, to have accounts of the risen Jesus meeting not only the twelve in Gal or the eleven in Galilee, but but the women outside the tomb. A couple of other things going on uh, in in Matthew's ending. One is this three-part narrative about the guards at the tomb. Uh, that's set up in uh, in chapter twenty-seven, where the um, is it the chief priests, uh, the priests, Jewish leaders, anyhow, approach Pilate and uh, say, um, "Let's let's make sure there's no way that the disciples can steal the body, and then go and tell the people uh, that he's been raised from the dead, and we'll be in a worse mess than we were before." Yeah, let me, let me read that. That's in verses, verses 62. It says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember, uh, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by, steel, by uh, sealing the stone. Yeah, thank you. Um, just a parenthetical comment that, uh, that the, the cry of all the people in 2725, all the people cried, his blood be on us and on our children, is not the, the last time that we hear of, of the people in Matthew, there is this really ironic statement that you've just read. Um, the, 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 uh, the leaders obviously think that they're going to be able to forestall the people hearing that Jesus has uh, risen from the dead and that the, the result would be worse than the Jesus' own preaching. Uh, the, the, the irony there suggests sort of the reality, the, the opposite reality from Matthew's perspective, that that the word has gone out to the people and many of them have rallied around Jesus. Uh, so, so this cry of all the people isn't the last word on the, uh, the, the, the people in Matthew. Matthew wants to tell that story, which he does in three parts. Uh, the, the earthquake and the appearance of the angel at the tomb uh, uh, causes the the guards to to uh, collapse like dead men, and then um, uh, the uh, the Jewish leaders bribe the guards to uh, to keep quiet about it, uh, and if they if the word gets to the governor, they would they would take care of it. So Matthew has this sort of apologetic story. Um, the the, the one certain um, historical bit to it is is that there there did circulate in Matthew's environment um, the, the the more scurrilous claim that the disciples that were perpetrating a fraud by stealing the body. So that's one thing that Matthew wants to work in. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is is this sort of a highlighting of the eschatological significance of everything that's going on, which includes the the strange story of the uh, 
of, of the graves being opened and the saints being raised and the saints going marching into Jerusalem, as it were. Um, and why does that happen there instead of with Jesus' resurrection? Why does it happen at the moment of his crucifixion? Yeah, it's doubly odd because the, the tombs are open and they're raised, but they have to wait around until the resurrection is, has actually happened to, 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 to go into Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's an odd account. Um, I, I, I think as far as the narrative is concerned, it's part of the, the uh, eschatological embroidery, if I can call it that, that includes, well, also the fact that the the messenger at the tomb is an angel, uh, and that the it's an earthquake that rolls the stone away, um, and that's what causes the the guards to uh, to collapse. Um, so the, there are things that Matthew wants to weave into the the concluding part of the story, um, in addition to, I, I think, what's the main. The main uh, element is the appearances of Jesus uh, and the, the commissioning of the disciples. Right. So in addition to the commissioning of the disciples, it's, it, it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly that you see Matthew, it seems more concerned than Mark about giving an apologetic for Jesus' resurrection, a defense of it. And so he includes the story of the securing of the tomb um, as a way to kind of I guess, defend that, look, even with the tomb having been really secured, uh, um, Jesus, the, the empty tomb indicates that the disciples didn't steal the body, but there must have been some kind of kind of supernatural event, or, you know, and it, that is the resurrection for, Matt, for Matthew. Does that sound right? Yeah, and perhaps, well, it's not only us disciples that, that uh, witnessed this, but there were many others as well who were, see, who were raised at, well, raised, which is just, you know, why, why a resurrection before the resurrection, but, but, but who were raised and were seen by many. So there are apologetic threads uh, going through that as well. And, and Mark seems not as concerned with having to shore up that kind of apologetic account for whatever reason. You know, we don't necessarily know why, but for some reason, Matthew is concerned about it because, would you say it's because there is this kind of like counter narrative going on about the empty tomb? Yeah, I, 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 the, the statement, the uh, uh, this report has been spread abroad among the Judeans or the Jews to to this day. Um, I, I think provides a little window into to Matthew's environment. Now that's a statement that could be read uh, as uh, evidence that Matthew is Gentile, but he's he's not Jewish. Um, right. It, this this story has been been spread abroad among uh, those people, uh, but but I think it's it's more a reflection that Matthew was aware that there are Jews and Gentiles among his readership, and he's pro providing perhaps some sort of inside information to. Uh, uh, to, that wouldn't necessarily that Gentile readers would not necessarily have been privy to. Mark is much right. more pre prepared to leave us with a, a mysterious Jesus, um, and with puzzles that need to be uh, worked at and figured out. 
In Matthew 28, Galilee is repeatedly mentioned. Uh, the angel appears to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, shows them that the burial place is empty, and tells them to then go tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised and that he's going ahead of them to Galilee, in verse 7. And then Jesus himself reiterates this when he appears to the women, that the disciples will meet him in Galilee, in verse 10. And then in verse 16, we're told that the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Seems like Matthew really wants us to know something about Galilee. Why is, do you think Galilee is so important here for Matthew and for, his, and for the gospel of Matthew? Well, if, if he's uh, depending on uh, Mark, Galilee has already been identified as, as um, the place where Jesus would, would meet the disciples. So, so there's, it, it may be no more than that. But but it might be a counterpart, I guess, to the uh, the statement in chapter four, Galilee of the Gentiles, a, a light has dawned. It might be a kind of a a uh, uh, you know, Galilean bookends to the uh, the gospel as a whole that that the ministry of Jesus begins in Galilee, um, and there's some sort of connection to the ethne to the Gentiles uh, and, mm. and the the new stage of the the mission um, um, is commissioned in Galilee as well. Now, when Matthew tells us in, in verses 11-15 that, again, the story was circulated among the Judeans to this day, the, the Greek term that the NRSV translates as Judeans is contested among scholars, as you well know. And, and it's the issue is how to translate the Greek term, right, eudaioi or eudaios in general, right? This is a general problem that... New Testament scholars have been uh, grappling with. Some scholars think that we should translate uh, the term in the traditional way as the Jews, right? Um, and then other scholars prefer some prefer Judeans. Um, can, can you maybe briefly indicate to us what's at stake in these different suggestions? And then without getting lost too far in the weeds, maybe tell us what how you prefer to translate the term here in Matthew 28 more specifically. The issue has to do it in part, I think, with with the the common assumption among among um, scholars uh, to think about Jews and Judaism uh, as representing a, a kind of entity that's parallel to Christian and Christianity. Uh, uh, in other words, we have two kinds of religions going on here. One is the Christian religion, and those who are part of it are Christians. And the other is the Jewish religion, Judaism, and those who are part of it are Jews. I think it's Christopher Stendhal who said that we're, we are more, we are led astray more by what we think we know than by what what we don't know. And uh, the the assumption that we we can conceive of Jews and Judaism in in a manner analogous to Christians and Christ Christianity, um, uh, inventing a new category called religion in the process, um, is is part of what's going on in that discussion. The the the, the realities that we have to deal with primarily in the ancient world have to do with ethnic groups. Um, uh, nations, in their sense of the term, not ours, uh, so that a 
a, a Jew or a, a Syrian or or a Macedonian is is part of a people group that's identified with a, a language and a set of customs and, and an area feeds into to my interests uh, to to a certain extent because I think that uh, in in study of the New Testament the the categories of Jews and ethne Gentiles is a much more significant category than Jews and Christians, or at least a, a, a more pertinent one. Uh, I, I appreciate the arguments that are made by by some scholars that Judean is a rendering that would be much more in keeping with ancient ancient uh, use that would talk about Macedonians or Scythians or or uh, Galatians than Jews. Um, contemporary Jewish scholars object uh, to some extent to, to that use be, because it is seen as effacing Jewish identity and, and the, the, the Jewish reality in these scriptures. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated identity kind of issue that's going on. So if you translate it Judean, the focus then is more on the geographical location yeah, rather than right. the religious affiliation. I, th I think it's it's not strict, strictly geographical, but it it it's an ethnic term. It has to do with uh, a people group, um, and 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 that generally, from the time of Herodotus, is understood as as involving well involving a land, involving a shared history, involving a set of customs, some of which customs and traditions, some of which have to do with the divine or the gods. Uh, but sure. but those, those cluster of terms that constitute ethnicity are, um, are, are what's wrapped up in the term Judean from the standpoint of ancient uh, use, um, which isn't carried through really with the translation Jew today. Right. Because we tend to, when we use the language Jew, we tend to think, I think many people just think kind of religious connotations. Though even, I think even the English term can carry with it, I think, yeah. you know, uh, ethnic connotations and, you know, particular ancestral traditions and customs. Maybe Judean kind of jostles us out of yeah. only attaching the religious aspects. Yeah, there's a place for, for interpretations and readings that defamiliarize texts, let us see things that may have been obscured by just the well-worn trans translational paths that we've inherited. So where the rubber meets the road here is... How do you... <laughs> what would you propose here as the translation? Do you prefer Judean or do you... I, I, I can see arguments either way and I don't have a strong okay. feeling either way. Sure. I, I think it would be, it would be the the kind of footnote that I would write to, to a translation <laughs> that would allow me to, uh, to kind of equivocate as I'm doing sure. right now. <laughs> okay, so you could um, you could go with either, but how would you want to explain the identity of the Udayoi here, amongst whom this report has been circulating? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's restricted to geography. That that uh, Matthew Matthew was just talking about um, a, a group in Judea. I I think it, it's it's a more general term, 
I, I, I see it as, as uh, whether you translate it as, as Jew or Judean, I, th I think the author of the first gospel is a Jew or Judean, uh, but, but here he's addressing a mixed ethnic group, uh, saying that among, among the Jews, Judeans, this sort of an argument against uh, our, our shared uh, Christian belief is, has been spread. Now, in verses 16 to 20, so we're now moving on to Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and there the 11 disciples are now in Galilee, and they arrive at, we're told in verse 16, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, mountains are an important <coughs> site. They're very significant in Matthew and elsewhere in Scripture and ancient literature. Could you maybe briefly tell us why are mountains so important uh, in the ancient world, and why are they important for Matthew in particular? Maybe I should preface, a whole book my on this, right, Terry? <laughs> preface my comments by by uh, uh, saying that after I'd finished my dissertation on the mountain motif in Matthew's gospel, the uh, the job that was available to me was uh, smack dab in the middle of the Canadian prairies in Saskatoon. Something that I've, I've often wondered was some sort of uh, divine irony at work. Uh, be that as, as it may, yes, mountains are very, uh, very well, they're significant in scripture with Sinai and Zion in particular um, are coming to mind and others as well. And in Matthew, we've got a whole um, string of them, or chain of mountains, where significant things appear, happen. Um, the third temptation, the tempter takes Jesus up to a high mountain and shows him all of the, the kingdoms of the earth and offers them on certain terms. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, where, where the crowds and the disciples gather to Jesus and he he uh, engages in, in this um, extended teaching about discipleship. In chapter 15, there's a scene that's quite unique to Matthew, 1529 to 31, which actually it's a crowd that gathers to Jesus for healing, and it's the crowd that experiences one of the feeding miracles to follow. Uh, then there's the transfiguration, a very high mountain. Jesus is, is declared to be divine son. Um, the Olivet Discourse, where, where uh, the disciples ask about um, the signs of Jesus coming and the end of the age, and then the Great Commission. Um, I, I think there's two things going on uh, with uh, with Matthew's mountain. One is 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 that well, there are there are significant things that happen. They have to have to do either with Jesus' identity. And authority, the third temptation, the transfiguration, the Great Commission, or they have to do with the gathering of the new community of disciples and crowds. Um, all of that in an eschatological kind of kind of context. Uh, I t tend to think that the primary backdrop for Matthew's mountain scenes is are the Zion traditions. Um, the, the location of the temple, the place where the king is enthroned, the place from which the Torah will go out in the last days, the place where 
a banquet will be served for the nations. Um, I, th I think that these themes that come into view in, in Matthew uh, resonate most strongly with, with, with uh, Zion themes. Um, now, uh, the Dale Allison is, is one who has argued strongly for a new Moses motif in, uh, in Matthew, and he, he uh, has taken me to friendly task uh, with my emphasis on, uh, not on Moses, but on Zion. And, and I, 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 I take his point. I, I was writing a, a, a dissertation where you feel, at least I felt I had to defend d defend myself from all comers and, uh, and, <laughs> and argue that, no, this is Zion and nothing else. I, I'm uh, much more mellowed in my, in my interpretation since then. So yeah, there certainly are, are Mosaic and Sinai uh, themes going on, but, but I still think that for uh, uh, Jewish readers in, in the first century, uh, Zion would have figured much more prominently in everyday life as, as the location of the temple. Uh, and that it it resonates more strongly with with what Ma Matthew sees is going on there. The other thing that I think is going on is that there are interesting connections between various ones of the uh, the the first um, five mountain scenes and and the Great Commission. Um, the what what Satan offers in the Transfiguration narrative, all authority. Well, he doesn't use the word authority, but all of these kingdoms are yours. Uh, is rejected by Jesus because it, uh, it it kind of short circuits the, the the kind of path of sonship that that he's called on to walk. But in the Great Commission scene, uh, having followed the the path of obedient uh, um, and suffering to the end, the risen Jesus can proclaim all authority is in heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, go and Disciplize all the all the nations, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Or where do you find make, making disciples of them and teaching uh, to observe what I command you? Where do you find the concentrated teaching on discipleship? But the Sermon on the Mount, um, the uh, uh, Jesus' exaltation as divine Son, um, uh, the Transfiguration narrative is kind of repeated in a in, in in a in a hierarchy in the Great Commission um, it's not without significance that the the Christological term there is son so I, I think that there are these in, interconnected uh, thematic um, uh, resonances between the, the various mountain mountain scenes so that's my thesis, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I think I actually like the Zion motif that you're pulling on, especially, I mean, I really see that, um, you know, the enthronement, right? Uh, which is, I mean, Matthew 28, 18, 20 is very royal, with yeah. all authority in heaven and earth being given to him, which is really royal. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that can be missed. And then the Torah to the nations, Israel's law to the nations, I think that's, I think that really kind of hits on, I think, I think what's going on with uh, dis, you know discipling right. and teaching the 
the nations to obey all that Jesus has commanded as a kind of way of bringing the nations to Zion, right, and the law, the law going forth from Zion to the nations. Yeah, and I, I've never heard this before now, but the all authority has been given to me yeah. when the devil offers to give him right. all the kingdoms. I, yes. I buy that too, so yeah. I think you pass your defense. <laughs> Ronnie and I were on the committee. Uh, <laughs> now, do you include Golgotha amongst your mountains in Matthew, the Mount of Crucifixion? Is that one of the mountains? I went looking for that mountain, you know, on a hill far away, uh, Golgotha. Uh, there is a green hill far away, uh, but but there's there's no indication that I could find in the in the Gospels or early Christian tradition that, that the site of the crucifixion was a hill or or a mountain. Now it it comes in later on, and and I think it's similar to to uh, developing Jewish tradition that has. Um, important uh, biblical scenes later relocated to uh, to a mountain, often often uh, Mount Zion, the, the site of the temple. Adam's creation, for example, in I'd have to look it up, but in in one tradition is located uh, at a uh, at I think Mount Zion, the site of Mount Zion. Something similar is even going on with with Jacob's. Uh, the account of Jacob's uh, stone uh, pillow. So I, I think it's a later tradition that develops perhaps in, in tandem or over against a, a Jewish concentration of significant events at Mount Zion. Yeah, so it's a kind of indirect support for your view though in that because mountains were considered so important and since this was an important event, in the end, they put it on a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh-huh. Even if it wasn't, Even if it wasn't actually yeah. in the gospel on a mountain. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> now, in verse 17, we read that when the disciples come and meet with Jesus in Galilee, it says, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And this is just a fascinating verse. You have these disciples meeting Jesus. So let's talk about those two responses to Jesus, worship and doubt. How do you yeah. understand those two responses, and how would you would you like those translations? Would you propose different translations for what's happening there? Well, the the, the translation worship puts this into a a divine kind of. I guess there are there's hero worship in our home context as well, um, but but the word that's used here. Uh, is is not restricted to the kind of worship that that uh, is given to a divinity. I mean, one of Jesus' parables, you know, a servant. Um, uh, uh, I think it's one of the the parables about indebtedness uh, falls at the master's knees, uh, and the word there is proskuneo to to to, to show reverence or or submission. Uh, so it. It it certainly is is uh, it it doesn't necessarily have divine connotations though the earliest um, one of the early appearances of the words is in, is in the temptation you uh, you will worship the Lord your God and and God only will you serve so so there are divine connotations that are attached to the word from the beginning. Um, I, I would be happy with the term reverenced Jesus here, but I don't think worship is out of place. Um, 
So it could be like it, so it could be reverence in the sense of that's what you do to a, a royal figure or a, you know yeah. you you prostrate yourself before them. But you're suggesting it could also have the connotation of re reverencing the divine as well. Especially in, in the temptation narrative, Jesus has kind of upped the stakes by saying, "God only will you rever mm. will you worship," uh, so it has that mm. kind of content. I'm not trying to import a, a very high um, Christology in into Matthew, but but the, the term does have that that resonance. As far as and then what about doubt? I, it just yeah. doesn't. It's kind of jarring. I, here we have the disciples finally encountering the resurrect, <laughs> resurrected Jesus in their responses yeah. to doubt. But it's not out of keeping with the disciples in in Matthew that uh, they. They are uh, uh, pictured as doubting. I think it's when Peter's walking on the water, he begins to doubt and begins to sink. The, the term oligopistos, of little faith, is the characteristic, uh, Jesus' characteristic criticism of the disciples. Um, so uh, right to the end, the com combination of reverence and and doubt is is um, one that we should recognize by by now in the in the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are two of the the elements in the Great Commission passage that that pick up themes that that go uh, through the gospel as a whole. Now, Jesus then says to them, uh, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all." Uh, the ethne, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, we've touched on this a little bit. I wonder if you could give us kind of the, the highlight. How does this kind of capstone of the Gospel relate to what happens elsewhere in Matthew? How does it sum it up and tie it to its kind yeah. of climactic goal? Well, taking uh, individual parts of, of uh, that statement, uh, the authority of Jesus is is something that's emphasized throughout. Uh, you know, the, um, uh, uh, they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Um, if, if you do a concordant search on authority, that, that's a... A, a highlighted feature of Jesus, um, make disciples. Uh, other commissioning statements have different wording. You know, preach the gospel. Um, in in Matthew, the ma making of disciples is um, picks up a, an important aspect of the of the, uh, the the gospel as a whole. The emphasis on disciples and discipleship. Um, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. You know, Jesus as teacher, as giving of, of commands, uh, of, of, a, of an interpretation of the Torah. All of those are characteristic features of Jesus' uh, activity in, in the gospel. Um, I am with you always functions as kind of a bookend to Emmanuel, God with us at the outset. Uh, and even to the end of the age, that phrase comes up quite, 
quite repeatedly, including the Olivet Discourse. So individually, those elements, um, as, as I said earlier, highlight aspects that, that are already part of the, uh, the gospel earlier. Uh, but it, it does represent sort of the culmination of, of the two, two complications that were apparent at the beginning of the gospel. At, one of them had to do with Jesus' twofold identity as son uh, and the, the sense on the part of a first-time reader that, well, if Jesus is, is going to insist on a path that leads uh, to, to suffering and, and death, how is he going to, uh, um, uh, to, to save anyone? Well, that path having followed, been followed through to the end, Jesus can declare, now all authority has been given uh, to me, uh, and and initiate the command for a new uh, a new people. Um, likewise, with with uh, with the Gentiles. Um, yeah, we wanted you to solve that one for us, right? The translation of the Athenae. <laughs> As I say, I used to prefer the reading, go and make disciples of all the nations. So it's an expansion of the the command that, that uh, Jesus gave the disciples in chapter 10. But I, I, I just simply find it harder to, to justify that translation of the term ethne here. For one thing, the, the parallel with the, the command to the disciples in chapter 10, don't go to the ethne. Uh, with chapter 28, go to the ethne, seems to suggest that it's talking about the same thing. Also, uh, it, in, in my, uh, I've, I've done a very thorough search of all of the places where all, all the ethne or kol hagoyim, all the, all the goyim appear in Jewish writings. Um, and th the vast majority of them refer to non-Jewish nations. Um, and then there's the, the, the fact that the ethne and Jewish usage um, is, is used to talk about individuals as well as ethnic groups. Um, I'm not sure that you can baptize ethnic groups uh, or disciplize ethnic groups or teach them. It seems to be that individuals are more in view in in that kind of activity, so uh, I'm I'm inclining to a view that's come to expression more recently in in Anders Runison's work on Matthew and uh, Matthias Conrad's work, where uh, the, the the feeling is that is that Matthew presents us with two missions that are going to last until the end of the age. There's the, the mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is going to last until the, the parousia of the Son of Man. The mission to uh, all the Gentile nations, the remaining world, that's going to last until the end of the age. Um, so it's, it's not that, that, that one mission has um, just come to an untimely conclusion and been replaced by a Gentile mission, but that Matthew sees two missions going on in parallel fashion to the to the end of the age. Now, a lot you, of... 
yeah. time has happened between Matthew's writing and now, and, and what sense we make of that in our own day, uh, is is another large question. But but I'm I'm more inclined to read it as as something that has has to do with with the the restriction of the mission now being lifted, so that there is also a mission going to the the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the Gentile nations. Yeah, great. And um, the you, you you mentioned a little bit about Christology when you were uh, like when you mentioned uh, the citation of uh, uh, of the of Emmanuel, right? Uh, God with us earlier in um, in Matthew's Gospel, and how that's echoed here with Jesus saying, "I'm with you always to the end of the age." And then there's also this triadic formula that some people point to as well, right? Um, you, they, they baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? That comes along with that. I am with you always. Um, do you see? How do you see those things playing into Matthew's Christology? I mean, you, you, you know, is it a high Christology that kind of includes him into into the identity of Israel's God, or is it not as high as some people think? I mean, this is a kind of debate in New Testament scholarship. <laughs> One measure of it, I suppose, would be to ask if Matthew has any sense of pre-existence, you know, of, of the Son uh, being a, a, a pre-existent entity that, that becomes incarnate. And I don't find any, any um, clear hint or, or suggestion of that in Matthew or, or in any of the synoptics. Uh, but, but there is a, an aura around Jesus that uh, it, from Matthew's perspective that that uh, uh, helps one understand how that's that kind of a step could could well have been made before too long now the, the, a certain amount of defamiliarization defamiliarization probably needs to go on uh, if you if you turn to the baptismal narrative you've got the father the son and the spirit acting um, so Jesus and the Spirit and Jesus and the Father are, are commonly juxtaposed in Matthew um, so the, the statement here if we understand it going forward from Matthew rather than backwards from from centuries of later uh, baptismal uh, formulations may fit more um, uh, authentically into into a Matthean kind of world. And finally, on uh, the Great Commission, as it's called, uh, is there any misconception or misperception of this passage that you would want to correct or adjust in the way that it's commonly understood? I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a mis, misconception, but... When you think about the, the history that's unfolded between the end of Matthew's Gospel and today, and see uh, what can happen in, in a world that still exists, this, this side of the, the reign of God, when one makes, one identifies too unquestionably with, with power and authority, um, 
then 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 there are are, are dangers that uh, that um, can emerge. I mean, there are all sorts of overtones to to those comments, and and some of them are are picked up in in my uh, my book on Gentile Christian identity, where um, um, uh, Gentile Christians um, redefine themselves in in such a way as to present themselves first as a counter nation. Uh, Christ is a better way of gathering all the nations in into a new empire, and then with when Constantine comes along. This counter nation becomes a ready-made partner for empire, with consequences that, while not entirely negative, certainly have been significantly negative. So, uh, just maybe a, a call to Christians to identify as as fully with the humble, obedient son, the the servant, uh, the suffering servant of of. Uh, Isaiah, who also comes into view in Matthew's gospel, as with the the all-authoritative, uh, exalted, empowered son. We're not there yet. Yeah, that's great. Well, one final question that we have for you uh, is one we like to ask all of our guests, which is for a blurb, some kind of recommendation. Now, it could be a book, and you were familiar with blurbs on books, uh, they're very common, uh, but it could be anything else. It could be a movie or a TV show, or we've, we've received several blurbs for life hacks of various mm -hmm. sorts. Uh, so something that you've just found helpful recently that you think our listeners might find helpful as well. Well, I do have, have, have one book like that, but before that, uh, here, uh, a, a, a book that I occasionally think I might like to write, the only... Uh, only in my imagination, I'm certainly not the only one who, who has a secret envy of other academics who are, be, are able to write a book that crosses over from the from the narrow scholarly world and becomes a bestseller. Uh, won't name any names here. Um, I've long since realized that any books of mine, I sometimes introduce myself rather tongue in cheek as I'm a scholar and and uh, an author of rare books. <laughs> uh, but I, I uh, do have this uh, fanciful idea of writing a book that, well, what sells? Um, uh, uh, books that, that do with food and diet are, are, are pretty uh, guaranteed to be bestsellers. Food, books that deal with fashion and dress. So what I'm thinking of is John the Baptist's Guide to Diet and Dress. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it could be on the shelf besides, you know, my year of living biblically or something like that. <laughs> my year of this is a blurb biblically. for an imaginary <laughs> book. <laughs> or a blurb, a life hack, which is look to John the Baptist mm -hmm. for some suggestions on that. Or not. <laughs> Very briefly, uh, I've, I've recently read John Kloppen's, John Kloppenborg's book. I'm going to get the title right. Um, uh, Christ's associations connecting and belonging in the ancient city. As, as Ronnie will well know, John and his students for several decades now have been investigating uh, this, this whole array of associations, uh, clubs and guilds and neighborhood groups and, and ethnic groups 
that that existed kind of in between the the household at one level and the the Greek and Roman city at at the at the higher level, uh, and there's all sorts of information on on them. The the early uh, Christ groups, the early ecclesiae, would have resembled um, groups like that from the outside, uh, uh, and um, John's work. He's not trying to sh to shoehorn early churches into into just a, a narrow pattern of associations, but rather he's trying to use the, the broad array of information that we have on groups like this in order to uh, stimulate our imagination and and make more out of the evidence that we do have for Paul's ecclesia. So how they attracted new members. Uh, where they met, uh, how they paid for their activities, what, how they, how they ate together, um, what sort of social capital uh, was available to those who were, par who were part of their groups. How did they deal with conflict? I mean, all of these things that that come into view, especially in the Corinthian correspondence. Um, uh, we're not going to find answers to them in, in the study of associations, but we're going to have a whole pile of useful uh, parallels and, and uh, information that, that can be useful. It's written at a, there's some technical parts to it, but it's written at a quite, quite an accessible level. And it's kind of a, a culmination of, of these three decades of work that's been going on. Great. Well, thank you, Terry. Uh, thanks for taking the time to walk us through this last chapter of Matthew's Gospel and for taking us up on the mountain. And uh, thanks to our listeners, to you, if you have enjoyed coming up the mountain with us uh, and with Terry. Um, please go on Apple Podcasts. This is our great commission to our, our listeners. <laughs> go, therefore, and give us a five-star rating, as many as you can, and disciple all of the... Other potential listeners out there. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, thanks, Terry, and thanks for listening. And thanks you for, uh, to you as well. It's been quite enjoyable. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.